the Making Sense of Life podcast, episode 14. According to J.K. Rowling, life is difficult and complicated and beyond anyone's total control. The humility to know that will enable you to survive its vicissitudes. The Making Sense of Life podcast will not only empower you to navigate through a fast-changing world, but also to grow in body, mind and spirit. Inward change precedes outer transformation. As the ancient Greek author Plutarch once said, what we achieve inwardly will change outer reality. This podcast is sponsored by Logos Medical Legal. Sunil also works privately with senior leaders. Go to drsunil.com forward slash corporate to find out more. Hello and welcome to the Making Sense of Life podcast with me, Sunil Raheja. Today we've got a very special guest, Manoj Raitatar, who is the author of the provocatively titled book, Filthy Rich, The Property Tycoon Who Struck Real Gold. So Manoj, it's great to have you here. It's wonderful to be here. Manoj, your book is a fascinating and honest autobiographical account of wanting to live life to the full and with maximum impact along with the consequences that that led to, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, it's a story that spans generations. So it, goes, it's, it starts off in Britain, goes across to Africa, and covers Asian cultures, and radically changing worldviews. Just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your family. Yes, yeah, so I, uh, I was born in Watford. I suppose there's many memories that I could share with you of growing up in Watford in the 70s, but I suppose my... Probably the most vivid memory I have is actually going to the Hindu temple. Um, it was at the time when there was huge fascination in the Eastern religions. You recall the Beatles and a yes. number of other bands uh, that were including, you know, their faith in the Eastern religions in their songs. And it was at that time that my my father became fascinated in the Hare Krishna movement. And so he went to the temple. And so I grew up in an environment where God was important. God wasn't an optional extra. We did God. Um, every week. Yeah, right. and you've got a twin sister, haven't you, Mira, as well? And That's right, yes. My twin sister, she's a consultant doctor living out in New Zealand now. Right, okay. And you're married to Maria, and tell us, and, and tell us a little bit about your, your children as well. Yeah. yeah, so I'm married to Maria. I met Maria um, back in 1995 at a time when uh, I, I was a school teacher. Uh, she comes from the Caribbean, St. Kitts and Nevis, and we've been together, well, almost 20 years now. Mm. Have two children, uh, Ishan, who's uh, nine years old, nearly ten, and uh, and a, and a teenage daughter who's who's thirty. Got three of those. We know all about that. Yes. <laughs> so you describe yourself as having an entrepreneurial mindset, and you certainly do. I mean, reading your book, you certainly don't live life by halves. It's not a dull and boring life that you've had. You've been an English teacher, a BAFTA award-winning TV writer, and a successful property entrepreneur. So successful, in fact that your business at its height in 2007 was turning over £70 million a year and you were able to buy 200 off-plan apartments in Leeds for £30 million. So you've certainly tasted success in a wide variety of areas. Um, there's a theme about timing with those successes. Tell us a little about that. 
Well, I suppose this kind of desire, first of all, to to excel in life, to succeed, to do well, all stems from my uh, experiences in primary school, um, where I first heard the school motto, Forches Fortuna Javat, which was a school motto at Kavina School in Kenya, Fortune Favours the Brave. And uh, I mean, there's many things that I, I, I decided as a youngster that I wouldn't hold on to, but that school motto stayed with me. I suppose it was ingrained in me. And so that's how I ended up uh, doing a number of uh, uh, these different things and taking risks. Uh, and, you certainly uh, have, guess. Absolutely. And I suppose taking risks with good timing does help as well. Um, so the example of um, uh, of me writing a, a play, I was, I was studying uh, for an MA in drama and theatre studies a number of years ago, and an opportunity came up to to direct my own play. It was just part of the course. But I thought to myself, well look, I've only got one shot at life. Why don't I write this play as opposed to using a play script that's already out there? And why not just take it to the Edinburgh Festival? Take a group of actors. It's going to cost me a few thousand pounds. What is there to lose? Um, you know, we were in a church hall. There was probably, on some days, probably only five people coming to watch it. Right. There was a mix of professional actors and uh, yeah, yeah. and people that I had met across uh, along the way. And, uh, well, it was all about timing. It... Uh, it un- unexpectedly won a, a Fringe First Award Amazing, in uh, yeah. 2000. But, but that wasn't really your calling. I mean, you, you did so well in that, but I think it was really property in a sense. And there's a lot about timing with property as well, wasn't there? Yes. Yeah, so I suppose I dabbled in these other things like uh, like writing because, well, my aim had always be, uh, had been to be involved in business, but I didn't get the grades in my economics A-level, a- ended up studying English and ended up in teaching. Mm which really wasn't my calling at all. And the only reason I got into drama was because I felt that I felt more at home teaching drama than English. Mm. But yes, it, it's the case with the property as well. It was about timing. I, uh, my first property I bought in 1996, 97. In Wandsworth, yeah. Yes, it was in an area of Wandsworth where people at that time didn't want to buy because uh, it was a road, pretty road, beautiful Victorian terraces, but... It backed a council depot and there was a railway line at um, at one end. I could have bought a one-bedroom flat in East Putney at the time for £110,000, £120,000. But here, I could get a whole house. Mm. And there was a house on the market for the best part of 18 months. It was a big risk, but it had bags of space and character. And um, I took it. Yes. And uh, well, we, we all know what happened a few years later. Yeah, so you saw it double in that size and then you got onto this bandwagon of incredible financial growth. But there are dangers of money as well. And uh, on page 103 of the book, uh, I think the chapter is entitled Cracks in the Pavement, um, this, was, uh, this, is, this was a comment. When you have money, people fall into two groups, people who want to be near you and jealous people who want to be you. And you also write about how addicted you became to making money and becoming successful. So what sounds so great had a very dark side to it. Well, I, I was chasing money because um, I come from an Asian background and within the community that I live, uh, especially, I suppose, b- because a number of the Asians have, are economic migrants in search of work, they've had to make money really, really important to them. And it's understandable, especially the East African Asian community that's moved from Uganda and Kenya. Some of them lost huge amounts of wealth and then having to start all over again. So money becomes important. Yes, and um, that's very much your background. Yeah. Absolutely. But obviously, the danger is then that um, money takes over and uh, it's not just something to um, give you security and give you a good standard of living, but it becomes, well, it consumes you. Yeah. And in my case, it did. I, 
completely fell in love with uh, with money. And it all went badly wrong in 2008 with the financial crisis, didn't it? Well, that's right. I, I, I thought I was uh, invincible. Uh, I remember one journalist interviewing me in 2005 and just uh, and saying, yeah, you know, what could possibly go wrong? Uh, land was in short supply. There was uh, a huge number of, um, of, of people that needed housing and they couldn't build enough. So, and, and we live in an island with a lack of land. So what could go possibly but wrong? It, but it did go wrong. But what, it did go wrong. What, what happened? Yeah. Well, I built my whole business uh, on, on liquidity. Um, we were property traders in off-plan. We'd go to developers like Taylor Wimpy and, and we'd buy not just a few apartments, but we'd buy whole blocks at a time and trade them on for a profit to investors. So we were contract flippers, buy something for 100,000, flip on the contract for 110 and make that 10 grand profit in the middle. What went wrong is the fact that um, my investors would need mortgages at the end to complete. Mm. And with the mortgage market collapsing in 2008, we were holding on to the best part of about 800 to 900 apartments wow, that's a that huge were coming number. up to completion in 2008 to nine. But it just wasn't the, it wasn't just the fact that the mortgage market had gone. It was also the fact that the uh, mortgage companies were no longer lending money on these kinds of contracts that had been assigned on. Yes, and, and, you, and you're right. Uh, so any value in your business disappeared overnight as the property developers stripped the company of its cash. And then you say, the next two years were the hardest of my life as our family adjusted to the dramatic change in our finances. That's right. Well, it's uh, at that time in 2008 and nine. there were a number of reports of uh, people in high influential positions uh, having a lot of wealth and having lost it and uh, going on to commit suicide. Yeah, absolutely. Because the change in your lifestyle is so dramatic. One moment you are sending your children to private school, you're going on holidays to Mauritius, Dubai, you're eating mm. out in Gordon Ramsay restaurants and all that kind of stuff. And then suddenly your income just goes overnight. Yes. And so it was a huge, uh, huge change, uh, not just for me personally to adjust to, but also my wife and my children and, uh, and the family. So we've got that going on, all this happening with, on the financial side, but at the same time, there's a theme of God at work. And one of the things that comes through the book is how God has been at work right through your life. I mean, you, you started, you talked at the beginning about uh, you have religious, your, your, your dad was Mahindra, he went to the Hare Krishna temple, he put a Hindu shrine in your bedroom and would come in early morning, sort of doing his, uh, his Hindu prayers. So you certainly had that there. But then going to this Kavina school in Kenya. Tell us more about that, because there's a, quite a strong theme about this all, I think. Yes. Uh, well, we were enrolled in this Christian-run school, and my parents, as Hindus, obviously felt very comfortable uh, for us to go there, um, believing that all roads lead to God. And it was here at Kavina that I first heard the Christian message, and it totally blew me away. I mean, whoever heard of, of a king dying for his servants? Yeah. The creator dying for the created. And, and I... And, and it obviously had an impact because I remember, I thought it was quite a funny, well, not funny. It's interesting, but you talk about you were, uh, you were losing, was it, was it a hockey match? You were losing 4-0 at half time. And then you got your, your, your teammates together and you prayed with That's them right. for that. And well, you still lost, but you lost 4-3. You got some pride back. But that was quite fascinating, really. Just obviously there was a real spiritual interest, hunger, thirst yes. going on there. Well, the headmaster was a charismatic headmaster. He was uh, passionate about his faith. Yes. and communicating his faith. And um, 
I mean, I found myself having debates with my father about this uh, yeah. because I used to go back home and say to him, there's got to be something in this Jesus character because of the way this headmaster sings those hymns in praise to God. It's like he's experiencing something every time he mentions the name of Jesus. So there was that interest. And yet after that, obviously, you moved back from Kenya back to England. You went to Portsmouth and... From the book, you sort of just focus more and more on financial security. You go to a Catholic secondary school and you're doing mass every Sunday, but you're not seeing the same spiritual intensity or hunger. And if you like, that spiritual interest seems to be fizzling out and dying, I think. Is that fair? Well, I'd made a decision. I mean, I was fascinated with Christianity at Covina School, but I decided, I suppose, towards the end of my time at that school. And how, I, how old were you at that point then? Uh, well, it was actually a primary and a middle school. Yeah. So it took me up to, it actually took me up to age 14. Okay. And so the interest was there right up until that age. But actually when I, um, when I finished my time at Covina School, it felt like I was making a choice. Mm. And the choice was between, between money wow. and yeah. between faith. And the reason I chose money is because my parents had gone out to Kenya to, to make it big, to to make some money because of the economic downturn in the UK. And, uh, and you've seen the negative impacts on the, that, that financial uh, scarcity had, had on them as well. Yes. Well, this is a, the reality was they were in Kenya to make money, but uh, that, didn't, uh, that didn't happen. There was a lot of uh, financial issues uh, in my, you know, my father's uh, business with his brother. And uh, I, I used to see my mother at home. She'd be baking cakes and running cookery classes to make ends meet. And so I came to the conclusion that what did faith have to do with living in the real world where my parents were struggling? Yeah. But, but, so, but you obviously went from one extreme to the other extreme. So you, were, in a sense, became fabulously wealthy, you know, these luxurious holidays, you know, all the trappings of, of success and money. You experienced it all. Yes, and what? And, but did your faith? Did you just ignore your faith at that time, or that that? Well, I turned my. I did turn my back on faith after I left Kavina School, mm. and then obviously when I came back to the UK, I went to um, St John's College, uh, you know, Catholic boys' school. Mm. Um, but it. Um, not that I've got anything against Catholicism. I've got some very very good friends uh, uh, that are Catholics and 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 you know have huge faith in God. But in that particular place. In that context at that time, there was nobody there that was really talking to me about God in terms of having a relationship with him. And yeah, I suppose that, that obviously God was still at work because you ended up marrying Maria and meeting Maria and marrying her from a family with a devout faith as well. And uh, that's interesting. I think her whole extended family has quite a strong faith. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. So she comes from a, a, a line of, uh, you know, uh, people who have an immense faith in God. Um, Coming from the Caribbean, my her, her grandparents actually set up a church in Croydon, and uh, and yeah, faith was every day. They used to bake the bread in the house and take that to church on a Sunday where they broke bread. Um, so that was the environment uh, that she grew up in. And yet, you were attracted to each other. So you know, quite different people, really. <laughs> well, how we came to be together is very, very uh, yeah. It's an incredible story. My. My, my wife's uh, mother, my mother-in-law, had actually had a vision. Um, I think it must have been about six months before we met. And she turned and, and spoke to her daughter and said, you're going to meet this Indian man. Right. And, uh, and it felt that God was telling her to welcome me into her home. And uh, there's no uh, relationships in 
in their family of uh, of Asian and uh, Afro Caribbean. Yes. And and then I turned up at uh, this school as a teacher, uh, 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 first time teacher, having trained. Right. And there was just one day when I looked at Maria differently. Yes. And uh, I recall meeting her her mother, and the way she welcomed me, I will never forget that. Yeah. She just, and she spoke to her her daughter and said uh, to Maria and said, you know, this is the man um, that I saw. Sounds spooky. <laughs> that's quite so quite something, really. That's amazing. So that, that's it's fascinating. So again, so you've got this, you've got this, you've got this sort of dormant faith. You've got this hunger for money. And you're turning your back on God, and then you fall in love with this uh, lovely Christian lady, Maria. You get married. You have a son, Ishan. And Ishan has asthma, and he's two years old. Yes. Uh, What happens? Well, I mean, firstly, in terms of the faith aspect, you know, my... Although my wife was a Christian, um, her faith had gone to sleep, so we didn't really... Mm. We didn't really practice anything. We had a Hindu wedding. That's interesting. So although in name it was, yeah, it wasn't yeah, a real Yeah, so she was, a, I suppose you describe as a nominal Christian, but her mother obviously had a, an immense faith. But yes, in terms of my son, he asthmatic. Um, he'd been hospitalized a number of times. My wife tells me seven times up until the age of two. And it was when he was two in February 2008 um, that he was rushed to Northwick Park Hospital. We'd gone to the GP and they'd, and they'd uh, 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 call for an ambulance because his breathing was uh, uh, getting laboured. He was rushed into A&E. And we knew the drill. He'd be given the nebulizer, and he'd probably end up staying there for a few days or a week. But on this occasion, the nebulizer failed to work. Right. And um, I don't know if you've been in one of those situations before, um, but the nurses were panicking. We were panicking. He was rushed into resuscitation. Wow. And literally, the room was packed in seconds it was packed yeah i don't know how how they managed to get all those people in there that quickly but i remember there being i think four to five doctors and a number of nurses yeah and fighting. you say you could see the beads of sweat on the doctor's foreheads absolutely and well was, he stopped he stopped breathing he uh you know his airways shut down the nebulizer failed to work and they had to act quickly um they intubated him to keep him alive and uh yeah, there were all kinds of complications with his carbon dioxide levels. I recall one doctor who was on the phone to somebody and they were trying to work something out. We were ushered into a room next door. And um, mm. but what do you do in those sort of situations? You you are really at, at your wit's end. You well, are, all the yeah. money that I had in the world wasn't going to help me in my time of need. And I found myself, my wife, collapsing to our knees in prayer. But it's interesting what happens in those situations, if, if anybody has been in one of those situations, but your life does flash past before you. And uh, the thought that I had when I was in that room was, a, was that I'd lived such a sinful life. Right. The love of money had transformed me. It had made me into an arrogant man, a ruthless man. Right. Uh, there was nothing, you know, I was reflecting on this recently. I can't remember doing any good um, during that time when I was in love with money. I, I don't remember opening a door for somebody. I don't remember saying a kind word. You were so consumed with yourself. Totally consumed. Relationships were being destroyed. I wasn't that close to, I suppose, my family, mm. um, friends. I'd fallen out with friends. I wasn't treating my wife well. Yes. I was living an unfaithful life. And all of that came to me in that room. Wow. God has come to punish me. Wow. 
Um, but thankfully, yes. you know, they were able to get him to a stable enough condition to get him to St. Thomas's. And so that was the first step. Uh, at least that gave us some hope. Gave us hope. And, uh, and you have... And- on that, you had some people praying. Tell us about that. Yeah. Yeah. So he was in he was in St Thomas's for four days, and uh, this Christian couple that we we hardly knew, uh, we'd recently befriended. Their daughter went to the same school as my daughter. They were over from the states um, um, to work in the navy, and um, and they called us up, uh, and my wife picked up the phone. Um, I can't remember exactly when it was. Whether it was on the just after he was in resuscitation, but she basically said, "I can't talk. Um, we're in hospital." And they, but then they carried on calling us when he was at St Thomas's and uh, got their churches in America to pray. Wow! And uh, and and they were praying, and I was hugely impacted by this because I'd never encountered people praying for people that they don't know. Right. And why would they be calling us up all the time? And so that gave me comfort. It gave me strength. I remember the consultant saying on the fourth day, yes. your son is not going to open his eyes. He's suffered a huge trauma. We don't know what's going on. Um, it looked like there were a lot of previous infections that hadn't been, you know, uh, picked up on. And, uh, and so that was a hard conversation to have. And yet this Christian couple are praying. And on that fourth day, as the consultant did her ward round, um, my son suddenly bolted upright in bed. What an amazing experience. Yes. It was an absolute, uh, it was a miracle. The I remember, well, you know, after all the tears of joy, I mean, I'd wept for four days. I've never wept like that before. I wasn't the sort of person that wept about anything, but there I was uh, yeah. seeing my son and not not sure if he'd make it and uh, and then weeping for joy. I remember talking to the nurse and saying, you know, how can this be? And the nurse basically telling me it can't be. Really? Because your your yeah. son is just fully drugged up. So, so, the, so the doctors and nurses were, sh- were as shocked. I never really spoke to the doctor about it, but I remember speaking to the nurse who just said, you know, it's not really, it's not really possible. They couldn't really explain it. Um, well, I found myself, as you do, um, having experienced something like this, um, yes. turning to my wife and saying to her um, that I was going to go to church to just right. thank this couple. Right. But not once. I was going to go twice. Okay. I felt once wasn't enough because if this couple has prayed for my son and I don't know them, I've got to go twice. I want them to know how grateful I am yes. for what they've done uh, for our family. Okay. So and you so went to church? Went, I went to church. In Watford, was it? Yeah. Like- uh, it was in Northwood. I went to the church in Northwood first. It was, uh, yeah, I had a pleasant enough time there. Uh, it was a church that this couple went to and... Uh, after two Sundays, I had no intention of going back. Nothing wrong with the church, great church. But on the third Sunday, they invited me and my family to a church they were visiting in Watford called Soul Survivor Church. Right. And I was like, oh, do I really, really need to go? I've gone twice. Uh, You've got enough you know, to think yeah, about as well. You've got and, enough uh, to do. Absolutely. And uh, the business was there and, um, and, uh, and I was a busy man. I was always... Um, well, at that point, obviously, the credit crunch had started. So obviously, there were other pressures there to just keep the business going and keep it afloat. But I went to this church in Watford called Soul Survivor Church. And I remember distinctly being outside. Yes. It's in a warehouse. It's a charismatic church in the Church of England. And then walking into the room. Yes. And just crossing into that room where the service would take place. And I was, and immediately felt something as I walked in. Wow. 
um, which was, and, and I've heard a number of people say that so they've transcendental had transcendental experience, if you, in, in other words, something, something that's yeah, much bigger and greater than something. anything you've ever experienced. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. So there I was. Now, having had that experience, um, I was so tuned in then that I, I took great interest in, in the time when they sang songs and uh, listening to the sermon. And so what was it about the gospel Christian message that really struck you? Well, I'd heard the Christian message, as I said earlier. Yeah, you've known before. it all your life. Heard you'd, it. you'd heard it, so, yeah, you'd known it since you were a child, yeah. back in Kavina school. Yeah. I suppose I, I knew it with head knowledge. I'd heard the Christian message. Uh, I thought it was incredible that God would do something so crazy. I mean, it is a crazy story, God dying for the created. But for here, the, you know, when I was in that church, um, it dropped from my head to my heart. Suddenly, the cross that I had seen on church buildings and yeah. around necklaces took on deeper significance. And I suppose as a father who almost lost his son, yes. you were, there was that connection with a father who did lose his son. Yes. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because for the first six months uh, after I became a Christian, I used to find myself standing outside my house and praying. I loved being, uh, being outside in the cool breeze. I used to be a smoker for years, so that's why it's a habit I've probably picked up from there but I, I found myself praying to God and thanking God uh, that you saved my son and in those moments I used to sense God saying to me this lasted about six months God saying to me I heard the prayers of that Christian couple yeah. and I saved your son but I always want you to remember that my son Jesus I did not save yes my son Jesus went to the cross yeah. so that you can have life yes and so that's what happened. You know, I'd, I was in church. It suddenly made sense. You completely sense. broken by that message. and it's Totally. And it I wept. I wept <laughs> wow. for months in that church and, and outside of that church. That message just broke me. Broke you. And, and you changed. You changed as a person. Yes. So it was... It wasn't, uh, just, it wasn't just an intellectual... It, was, it, was, it wasn't even emotional. It wasn't intellectual. It wasn't emotional. But, but the Menorja Reitertar became a different person. Yes, so what happened is I, uh, I went back to that church a few more times. I heard the Christian message. I was experiencing something uh, in all of this, something greater. And I decided one day that I was going to make a commitment. I remember walking to the front of the church. Two people just um, yeah, prayed alongside me as I committed my life to Jesus. I came before him um, horrified by the sins that I'd committed and uh, seeking forgiveness and inviting God into so my suddenly life. there was this awareness that, that, that you were somebody who, 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 whose life was, was not the way it should be. Yes. And, and that that needed healing and changing. Oh, totally. Yeah. I, I couldn't believe that I'd, I, I was sinning so much in my life. And uh, I don't remember at that time really thinking that I was even doing anything bad. I mean, this is how, how I was living. I didn't really care you know, that I was being unfaithful to my wife or how I was treating other people. It didn't even register. It was just a lifestyle that I'd, uh, uh, you know, I'd taken on, you know, it was a lifestyle. And, uh, but there I was in the church, suddenly coming face to face with the depth of my sin. Yes. And, 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 you, and, and you say, uh, you're right, I, find, I found myself saying sorry, becoming gentler and caring for others, laying aside the pursuit of money in order to serve God. I remain involved in real estate, but on a much smaller scale. So let's just move on and think about, that's an amazing story in terms of how God has worked in your life. And 
Well, let's think about a little bit about, about your attitude to money now. And just as a quick sort of plug, uh, I think it's podcast number 11. We go into quite a lot of discussion about money. But uh, just to help us in, in our conversation, on page 108 of the book, uh, Maria writes, and she writes, Money is good. You need it to get by and to help others with less. However, it can also change people and families for the worse overnight. I felt like a stranger in my own home. So there you are, you know, with all that success and money, she she certainly was not happy at that time there. But now, yeah, tell us about your attitude towards money now. Well, I, it's something that I need to be careful about, um, you know, because money does have this uh, dangerous side to it. Um, when you want it, uh, you know, it becomes a god. Um, you worship it. <laughs> so Talk about the fact is that we know how much money you need, Manoj. We know how much everybody yes. listening, how much money. Yeah. Everybody says, gives the same answer. Yes. Everybody says, I need a little bit more. Yes. Whatever you've got, it's always, I need yeah. a little bit more. And, and that's, and how do you, I mean, how do you balance that? Well, what happened is I, I couldn't physically change my own attitude towards money. But that day when I committed to Jesus Christ, he came into my life. And so you still, found something much more valuable, I think. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, he just changed my outlook on things. One of the first things that sort of uh, uh, interest that went when I committed to Jesus was was the love of money. Mm. And, um, and so I see money as very, very differently now. I don't see it as something that I really own. It's not mine. All the money that I have at the moment is just is just borrowed. The question that God is asking me is, what am I going to do with my life? How am I going to best serve him? If God has come into the world to serve me, um, then really I need to spend the rest of my life um, serving him. And so money just becomes something as a way of, well, it's as a tool. Absolutely. Yeah. So you've now got a business called Instant Apostle that you started with a lady called Bridget Adams, who has gone, who has passed, the, who, who, who's passed away now. But uh, tell us a little bit about that. And... Well, for a few Bridget as well. Yeah. For a few years uh, after the you know mortgage market collapse of two thousand and eight, I, I didn't want to have anything to do with business because of the way I'd been running business yeah. um, to make money. It was all based around greed. And Bridget Adams was a vicar in the Church of England, but did a lot of teaching on how Christians are called into business, but to run businesses to shape the world for good. Yes, and she mentored me, and uh, and I learned a huge amount from her. And it was around, I suppose, the time of two thousand and eleven, uh, when she was writing this book on uh, business as mission. Yes, um, she put your name on it, didn't she? She, she put your she, name, on it and you say that she wrote the book and you edited it, but you got your name on it. <laughs> well, yeah, she sensed uh, as she was praying. She was a woman of prayer. She spent every Friday morning praying for the businesses in Watford. So she was a business chaplain. Mm. And she'd sensed from God in her prayers that I was meant to be involved in the book, not to write it, but uh, just to sift it. And as she came to the end of writing it, she sensed that we were meant to start a publishing house. Wow. Which I immediately rejected, saying to her, well, look, really, I have no no idea uh, about forming a Christian publishing house. I have no interest in it. And actually, I'm not going to be involved in it. But it was about four weeks later when I distinctly remember where I was, I was sitting in a cafe, right, talking about something else, and just having receiving that utter conviction. Uh, when I just felt God speak to me so clearly, so directly, that He was calling me to do this, wow. and I remember turning to Bridget and saying to her, "You're absolutely right." Okay. I, I remember saying I, I didn't really want to do it, but uh, 
over time I've come to realize the paramount importance of of humility and well trying to be humble and to be obedient as God was obedient in 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 his journey in so, reaching sorry go on yeah. yeah in reaching out to us how Jesus walked humbly uh, uh, to do that um, and so I decided yes we've got to do this this is my uh, this is my offering to God uh, my gratitude to God so what do you see as the as the calling, the vision for this instant apostle um, um, publishing well, I, house, what, what do you see for it? Yeah. I'm excited about new voices. Uh, it's a business model that exists to release new voices, uh, emerging authors, because there are a lot of people there that are uh, are blessed with the gifting to be able to write well and uh, sense they have something important to say, but they're not going to get a publishing contract because we live in a in a world where we look at the commercial side all the time, which is yes, is this author going to sell copies? Yes, and so this goes against everything I've learned in business. I know business needs to be profitable, but I've created yes. a model where um, our overheads are kept very very low. Yes, um, by using uh, a lot of people that freelance right. and. And though they freelance all the time for Instant Apostle, um, they do so at a lower rate because they've bought into the vision. Yes. Which means that we can release these new voices and some of these authors uh, are going on to become well-known authors now and really? could most certainly, if they want to, go on to bigger publishers if they want to. Um, and that's exciting. So these are some of the things that make your heart beat faster and make you sort of excited about the future in terms of what, what God is calling for you for the next chapter of your life, I think. Absolutely, yeah. I'm excited about uh, uh, you know Christians releasing books that will shape the world for good, and shape the world for God. That will point to God, and uh, and help people uh, in whatever circumstances there are in life. Yes, and as like we do with uh, with the podcast in terms of making sense of life in a challenging and complex world. Yes. I think a lot of the old answers are not there, and we need to find something that really brings together our love for God and for what He's done for us in Christ but in a way that can, uh, can speak to, to a world that's struggling with incredibly complex problems. Yes. Um, for which we certainly don't have the answers. Um, who, tell us let's a little bit more about who, who, so who currently are your heroes and mentors and why? Um, well, there's a number of uh, heroes. Well, Jesus is my, is my ultimate okay. hero. Um, I look, when I was at Covina School, I was given a book on the great evangelist George Whitfield. Right. And uh, he, who went out to the States and... Uh, you never read it at that time, did you? You, you, no. you read it a lot later, you told me, yes. I carried that book with me for a very, very long time, actually, uh, for, for many years. But never read it. <laughs> never read it until I became a Christian. I remember walking into my room one day, looking at my bookshelf and thinking to myself, wow, I've carried this all these years. I found myself reading it. And so, yeah, he's one of the heroes because... He was passionate about the Christian message, about the gospel message. We're we talking about it. Was it 1800s, 1700s, 1700, 1700s? I think. Yes, I'm. I'm useless with dates, but around the same time as John Wesley. John Wesley was uh, obviously uh, did a lot of work in the UK and George. And Whitfield had a huge went. impact on moulding the consciousness of America and, and Britain at the yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and I like the fact that he he gave his complete life. He surrendered his life to God. He'd preach sometimes, you know, well, numerous times in a day. And it didn't matter if he was with much sick. opposition as well, and a lot of opposition. Yeah. And when he was sick and when he was ill, I mean, this was the kind of guy that he would be, you know, he's dying, he's dying, he's on his deathbed, and he's he's crawling out of bed because uh, he wants to make sure that uh, that everybody gets to hear that message um, of salvation. 
Wow, and that's and that's obviously become your passion and, and heartbeat now as well. Yes. So, how let's if we just think, you know because it, it's been great just to think through how God has been working in your life. And when you think back to um, the screenwriting career that you had as well, do you see that as something you might develop in the future again? Do you see that? Do you, how, how do you make sense? Because that was that was quite that was quite a big thing as well. You did for it was for a very. While. Yeah. It was it was significant. It was all about timing. We wrote this yes, goes back this to the theme TV of series uh, called "My Life as a Popat." Yes, about a madcap Asian family at a time when suddenly everybody in the UK was fascinated with Asian culture. Yes, and so it went on to win a BAFTA. Yes, and uh, when you won something like that, you think you think you'd be happy, but it yeah. kind of left me feeling numb yeah. at that time. That really, this wasn't my so all that success. It, I mean, yeah, that's right. It was a claim, and it, it didn't touch you inside. Yeah. Well, back then, it didn't. It didn't feel it was my calling. I'd uh, I decided from a young age that I wanted to make money, that I wanted to be rich. Yeah. I'd been fed tales of my grandfather, who'd been a successful businessman, and yes, that's really what I wanted to be. So, yes, it's a nice thing you put on the mantelpiece, but at that time, it didn't mean anything. However, I, I enjoy writing. Obviously, I've written my autobiography recently yes so, so just again yeah, just to just to plug it again it's filthy rich a property tycoon who struck real gold by Manoj Raitatal available on Amazon we'll have a link to that um, on the uh, on the website and, and the blog post that, that's linked to this podcast so that's what, I mean the book has brought me back into writing who knows I might write uh, for TV or film again really it's my wife that's a much better writer than me we uh, Yes. Everything that I've written has always been done in collaboration. Uh, I'm quite good at structuring, but there's a lot of better writers out there. So Yeah, and as we're coming to a close, I mean, you've had apparently success, but how would you define success now? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Well, before success was, uh, was all based around uh, how much money I had. Mm. Uh, it was based around recognition um, from the community. It was based around status. Um, success today is how humble I can be and how obedient mm. uh, I will be. And so I suppose uh, if I'm going to be obedient to God and whatever God calls me to do, then really what's important is I've got to listen more. And yeah. so <laughs> that's my focus this year yeah. is to really try to listen more, to find those yeah. quiet spaces, to be in front of God and having conversations and listening and Yes, and and then to, and trying to be and obedient. as you listen, then to live up to the calling that God has given you. We talk more about success on podcast number two. Yes, uh, if uh, people are interested to, to listen to that as well. Manoj, it's been fascinating talking to you. Fascinating to hear your life story. Thank you so much for being so honest, brutally honest about uh, the good, the bad, and, and the ugly of your life. Uh, I'm sure this will be a great encouragement and inspiration to many people listening out there. Uh, we'll have a link, uh, again, as, as I said, on, on the website. If you go to drsunil.com uh, and look, uh, you'll find a, a link to, 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 this, to this podcast. And again, and link to, to the book, Filthy Rich, uh, The Property Tycoon Who Struck Real Gold by Manoj Raitatar. And we'll also put um, a, a link to the Instant Apostle website as well. So people can, can look at that. Um, any, any final words? Anything else you, you want to... Well, it's just a delight to be here. My, why do I do these kind of things? Well, because, uh, um, well, it's it's interesting how life changes you. People now are important to me, whereas before I was the center of the universe. So I do these things in the hope that something of what I share will somehow help yeah. someone. 
Thank you. And uh, yes, and on that note, thank you so much again, Manoj. And uh, thank you, our listeners. And we really appreciate you taking the time to listen. Thank you. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, you can get all the show notes for this episode from drsunil.com. And could you do us a favour? Head over to iTunes to rate the programme. This is by far the best way to get this content into the hands of those who need it most. Also, do you think about who you could pass details of the podcast on to? Don't forget to check out the blog for more great content. That's drsunil.com, helping you to make sense of life in a challenging and complex world. Until next time, goodbye for now.